0: You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The 6th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Evan Burke from NUI Galway. His paper was entitled The Incomparable Lady Ranelagh, Catherine Jones' Reputation within Samuel Hartlib's Correspondence Network.
1: The Hartlib Circle was an intellectual Correspondence Network that was formed in London around 1641 and centred around Samuel Hartlib, John Jury and Jan-Anos Kaminsky. Uh, This group was mainly active between 1641 and 1661 and included well-known figures such as Robert Boyle, Henry Oldenburg, Benjamin Worsley and the Boat Brothers, which we'll hear more about in the next paper. Uh, as shown by Mark Greengrass and others, it is, its overarching aim was universal knowledge. Thus, members corresponded on various topics, including politics, religious com- uh, conversion, uh, educational reform, science and medicine. The network had, all, uh, had many um, Irish, uh, Irish female members, such as Catherine Jones, Viscountess Ranelagh, Dorothy Moore-Jury and Margaret Clotworthy, none of whom have yet garnered sufficient scholarly attention. However, due to time constraints, this paper will focus on a small portion of the epistolary reception of just one of these women, Lady Ranelagh. Catherine Boyle was born in Yall on the 22nd of March 1615, and was the seventh ch- child of Richard Boyle, the first Earl of Cork. Catherine married Arthur Jones in April 1630, thus becoming Lady Ranelagh. However, her marriage to Arthur was not a happy one, and when the 1641 rebellion broke out, Catherine moved to London to escape the trouble. While her husband stayed in Ireland. While abroad, her class and her connections allowed her to exert influence on the the political scene, and within two years of moving to London, she was introduced to Samuel Hartlib and quickly became involved in all aspects of his network. Overall, Ranela is a fascinating woman with a rich corpus of material, including over a hundred letters, multiple recipe books, and even a discourse on the plague. And so her place in the intellectual and political culture of the 17th century is crying out to be investigated in more detail. Luckily, over the last decade, this investigation has begun to occur, with many scholars such as Carol Powell, Ruth Connolly and Michelle DeMio focusing on Ranelagh's literary endeavours. This paper aims to add to this investigation by looking at the activities of an Irish woman abroad through the lens of reception evidence by two members of Hartlib's network, John Beale and Peter Figlas. John Beale became an active member of the circle around the mid 1650s. He was a clergyman and horticulturalist from Hereford who became involved in the Hartlib circle at a time when Hartlib's outlook was becoming more agricultural in nature. Just before Beale became actively involved in the network, Hartlib shifted from, shifted from promoting publications on education and religion to those concerned with agriculture, technology, and social policy, the epitome of which is Hartlib's The Reformed Commonwealth of Bees. <clears throat> this is an important publication for Hartlib. Not only did he see honey as the answer to England's domestic economic problems, as he saw the economic, economic possibilities of honey as a way to counterbalance the problems England was facing in the sugar trade, but Hartlib and his circle saw, the, saw in the pious industry and good husbandry of bees a natural analogue for their own public-spirited endeavours. Thus, for the Hartlib circle, husbandry was both scientific and religious in nature, as they were able to legitimise the search for scientific knowledge within the framework of divine love and charity. Therefore, it is no surprise that Beale came, became involved in the network at this point, as Michael Leslie argues that for Beale, the reform of horticulture cannot be separated from spiritual improvement. So, where does Ranla tie into Beale's involvement in the network? DeMio has argued that Beale and Ramler had an intimate relationship, and one can see this friendship cementing in 1657, between 16, 60, sorry, 1657 and 1658, Beale mentions Ranela in nine of his letters to Hartlib, referring to her in relation to her discourse on dreams, her interest in horticulture, and when discussing meditations. From these letters, one can see that horticulture and spirituality were at the heart of Beale and Ranela's common interests, which suggests that their close friendship may have formed due to their shared beliefs regarding religion and horticulture. However, Beale does not, bring, does not just bring attention to his and Ranule's shared activities. He also praises her and expresses his care for her well-being. The most important example of Beale praising Ranella in his writing can be seen in a letter to Hartlib. In this letter, Beale presents a metaphor in order to describe Ranella's charitable nature and good heart. And you may tell the Honourable Lady that she wears in her breast an inestimable jewel, which many will endeavour to get from her by fraud or violence even princes and powers, and then it's Ephesians uh, 6.12. This jewel cannot be long possessed without a very watchful eye and heavenly assistances. I will make bold to prescribe a safeguard. She must often humble herself to visit the sick and to comfort and help the distressed, to plead the cause of the righteous and innocent. Some branches of wisdom she may receive from the learned doctors and from books, and some branches she must accept from the experiences of saints. Beale's decision to compare Ranela's heart to an inestimable jewel is intriguing, as when one pictures a jewel of this quality, one pictures precious stones like rubies, diamonds and emeralds, all of which could be said to glisten and shine bright. This would imply that Beale saw, saw Ranela as a bright light, which is important when one considers the Bible passage Beale ended this sentence with. This passage was taken from the Book of Ephesians, which states... For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. In this passage, St. Paul is stating that a Christian's true battle is not against other men, but against the devil and his minions. When one places this in the context of Beale's sentence, it is apparent that Beale believed that certain princes and powers had become corrupted by the devil. Thus, as he believed that these corrupt leaders would endeavour to take the jewel from Ranla, he must have believed that Ranla to be he must have believed Ranla to be a viable threat to this corruption and that she could bring enlightenment to this darkness. Therefore, Beale saw and presented Ranla as a new form of, pure spiritual, of a pure spiritual intellectual whose pious actions and religious nature could viably challenge this perceived reign of darkness. Beale's faith in Rannell's potential was backed up by the safeguards he prescribed, and his belief that she would succeed if she followed this advice. If she retains in good ground this grain of mustard seed, it it will soon grow to be a tree of wonder, or a tree of life, or both. Interestingly, she seemed to take his advice on board, in that, especially after the Restoration, there is ample evidence of Ranla actively helping the sick and petitioning the cases of those she thought innocent. This faith in Ranla's abilities, combined with a perceived concern for her well-being, can also be seen in another letter from Beale uh, to her. In this uh, letter, Beale states, I had within myself some fear that by the hurry of the times and by your compassion towards many dear relations you would be overcharged, and I do almost hope and wish that John Hethridge and it's the letter bearer between Beale and Ranala, should not deliver my blotted papers till your body and spirit were freed from other molestations. At first glance, it may seem that Beale was expressing his concern that due to her generosity, Ranala had become overworked or even ill. However, this is clearly a trope, and instead, Beale was actually hoping that she would not receive his papers until she was either free from all other obligations or feeling better. This suggests that Beale wanted to ensure that she was focusing solely on his discourse, which in turn implies that he wanted, to help, he wanted to develop their relationship as he saw her as an influential religious intellect, whom he believed was very likely to be able to debate with him on the complex materials that followed, if given the chance to concentrate solely on this task. Furthermore, Beale's fear highlights just how highly he regarded her, as his assumption that she was busy when he sent the letters stems from a belief that those in need should be calling on her services. The next letter I want to look at um, is by Peter Figlas, a senior figure among the members of the network base in Amsterdam. On the 29th of November 1658, Figlas wrote a letter to Hartlib, in which he expressed his anxieties about the endangerment of the Protestant mission in Europe. He stated his belief that the whole Protestant cause and poor distressed churches were groaning and perishing under the heavy persecution of the House of Austria, before expressing his conclusion that if this continued, then the common cause of all Protestants' all where will be in time lost and quite gone. In the midst of expressing this fear, Figulus cited Ranella as an authority on spiritual matters, while also contemplating and lauding her. He praised Ranella as the most wise and godly Sibylla, and stated that, Her pious and truly religious considerations, both upon the present and future state of Protestant churches and people, might indeed become true of our own fault. He then directly followed this up by arguing that God might punish your commonwealth, the low countries and all the Protestants, however, because of their untowardness, negligency, not using those means which the Lord had put in their hands for their common safety." Thus, it is clear that the fault Figulus was referring to was the failure of Protestants to use the Lord's means to defend themselves, instead opting for a more violent path. It is also clear that Figulus believed that Ranlet recognised these failures before anyone else and predicted their current plight, even through Figlas, evident through Figulus's choice of language. He explicitly called her a Sibylla, which in classic mythology was a, was a maiden who gained the gift of prophecy and long life. This reference to prophecy resonates with the wider rise of female prophets during the Interregnum. Elizabeth Bolden argues that the political and religious turmoil of the Civil War years opened up the world of prophecy to early modern dissenting women on a large scale, and that the expulsion of radical Protestant groups during this time produced what is widely recognised as the first great wave of female prophecy. For example, the prophets Sarah White and Catherine Sutton were Baptists, while the well-known prophets Mary Mary Carey and Anna Trapnell were associated with the Fifth Monarchists. Susanna Mintz argues that it's no surprise that these women were able to rise to positions of authority in these sects, as in their nature these sects were oppositional and thus refused to abide by parliamentarian decrees, such as the Act which officially banned women from positions of religious authority in 1646. In fact, by 1654, Trapnel had risen to such a position of authority that she was attracting huge crowds through to her, to her prophecies, trances and verses, which resulted in her gaining notoriety because much of that utterance contained explicitly anti Comwellian inve- invective. Unsurprisingly, many of the members of the Hartlip Circle were interested in these prophetesses. Benjamin Worsley and Lady Ranelagh's name appear in Sarah White's Exceeding Riches of Grace Advanced by the Spirit of Grace in an Empty Nothing Creature, as, ha- as having visited White after she recovered from trances, in which he quoted texts from scripture and expounded upon them as if from memory. Thus, because of this interest, it is possible that Figlus knew of some of the prophetesses, and and thus drew on the classical word Sibylla rather than prophet or prophetess, in order to easily express his belief that Ranla was different to these other women. This this dissimilarity between Ranla and other female prophets is most evident when you compare her to Trafnall. Firstly, Ranelagh in no way could condone violence, which is in direct opposition to uh, Trapnel's fifth monarchist beliefs. Secondly, in Trapnel's texts, she often described herself as being pressed in spirit or under an obligation to speak God, God's words and, and, to, as he, and, and to do as he commanded. Uh, this suggests that Trapnel, Trapnel was presenting herself as, as a vessel through which God's words passed and so deferring authority to God. Again, this contrasts with Ranla as she did not make any attempt to defy authority in, her le- in the letter Figlus referred to. Thus, by choosing the word Sibylla, Figlis may also be drawing on the, the encoded authority of, the classi- of a classical term in order to elevate Ranla above other female prophets. This, in turn, would have emphasised her authority and with his acceptance of Ranla as an influential voice. However, what exactly did Ranla predict? And why did it resonate so deeply with Vigilis? All of this praise is in reference to a series of letters Randler wrote to an unknown recipient between October 1656 and February 1657. The surviving copies of these letters are all scribal, and Connolly notes that they all bear the hallmarks of collaborative publication. She argues that the physical manuscript's evidence indicates that a careful collation and transcription of her letters had been made, intended for formal distribution among members with no personal knowledge of Ranle. Furthermore, all the surviving copies of the letters are in German, and we know from a letter from, from Figulus to Hartlip that he translated the letters. And, quote, I made in, in Dutch the extracts hereto sent to me of the letters of the Viscountess, which Miss Stuart de Greer delighted in. Carol Pahl has explained that the word Dutch here is meant to be the word Deutsch or German, which suggests that Figulus himself translated the letters, another mark of his respect for her ideas. In these letters, Randler presented a passionate and well-developed argument in which she highlighted the dangers of relying on and working with members of the state in order to achieve Protestant unity. She argued that public officials could not be relied upon as they were using political and military aggression to achieve their aims, which she believes does more harm than good. Conley argues that Ranella brought attention to this by speaking to the irony of the fact that whilst John Jury was in Europe proposing closer working relationships between Protestant churches, a number of the countries with whose churches she was negotiating were teetering on the edge of warfare. Furthermore, through reference to Sweden's invasion of the Commonwealth of Poland-Lithuania in 1655 and the bloodshed it caused, Ranella suggested that those willing to use military power have committed uh, committed their power to the beast of the apocalypse, and that they use their powers rather as deputies of the Prince of Darkness. By highlighting that blood has already been spilled, and by aligning the military power that caused this with references to the millenarian second coming and the devil, Randler emphasised the degree to which violence is not a weapon that further God's mission, but rather furthers the mission of the devil. This belief resonates with Beale's use of Ephesians 612 in that it gives an example of and further explains his reasoning for believing that princes and powers have become corrupted. It may also suggest a further reason why Beale believed Ranla to be a threat to these powers. She was actively and publicly bringing attention to this religious corruption. Not only that, but she was wholeheartedly rejecting military violence and in its place suggesting a spiritual alternative, which is the message at the heart of these letters. I am of the opinion that our friend, which is John Durie, strengthened in his faith and circling among the churches, will perhaps give a more fatal blow to Rome and the whole anti-Christian hierarchy with the guidance of the spirit and the power of God's word more more than any fleet or army could, however strong they may be. Here Ranleagh emphasised her belief that peaceful and spiritual conversion, rather than warfare, would be what brings down the papacy in Rome. She argued that Jury's actions have a better chance of succeeding because Jury's weapons are those with which will truly undermine the papal edifice, humility and faith in God's providential power and word. Furthermore, in the process of making this argument, Ranla also drew on chapter 6 of Ephesians when she stated, My dear sir, please tell me, with what has God promised to destroy his enemies? Is it not with the sword of his mouth and the whole glory of his future? Is not the word the sword of his mouth? And is this not the armour and weapons which in the scriptures are said to be powerful enough to overthrow everything that rebels against God? Conley argues that Ranley used Ephesians in order to present Jury's work as a supersession of older, more violent ways of enforcing Christian power, through re- representing the necessary triumph of the word over the sword. Thus, as Beale also quoted the same chapter, he may have seen her as a bright light, not only for the reasons he expresses in his letter, but also for her ability to present intellectual ideas that resonate with St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians and offer an alternative to violence. These beliefs also resonated with Figulus, as they drew on his fear for the future of the Protestant mission in Europe. Furthermore, by the time he read the letters, the countries teetering, uh, threatening warfare—Sweden, Brandenburg, Denmark, Austria, and Russia—had become embroiled in, in battle. This war had a great impact on Figulus, and having witnessed the war as proof that Randel's assertions were right, allowed him to place faith in Ranla's observations about jury and renew and reinvigorate his belief that the Hartlib Circle could actually achieve its religious aims. This faith in her ideas greatly enhanced Ranla's reputation as by translating and circulating her work he seemed to be joining Beale in presenting her as a potential innovative religious thinker who could reinvigorate the Hartlib Circle. In conclusion... In the mid-1650s, Beale and Figlas began to deeply engage with Ranelagh's work and portray her as an equal and respected uh, intellectual. They expressed their, thru- their trust in her. They highlighted their care for her well-being. They actively agreed with and circulated her intellectual ideas. Most importantly, they began to see Ranela as a religious leader whose ideas could reinvigorate the network's Protestant mission. When one combines all this, one sees an Irish woman with a widespread and ever-involving positive reputation who was respected by all those she came into contact with. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at com.